Hello, everybody. Welcome along to Playboard's Second Play podcast. My name is Peter McCartney. You may know me from the first podcast, and if you don't, then you'd better go and listen to it now. Only joking. Today we've got Ms. Playwork, Northern Ireland. We've got the person who makes play happen for loads and loads of people in Northern Ireland because she's the playwork tutor in the Belfast Met. Barbara McElroy. Barbara, welcome along today. Barbara's going to talk to us about play, about her own experience of play, and explore what happens when children play. What does it look like? Barbara, you, you and I know, you and I know that play is the most important thing that children do. And uh, usually when we're talking to folk about play and play work, we 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 explore our own play memories because that's always a good starting point and demonstrates that that we all have some expertise in play because we used to play ourselves. Would you like to share any to start us off, would you like to share any play memories that you have yourself of when you were a child? Yes, I know I've done this a number of times. I was in your class year, or let's say a long ago. Um, so I remember doing it then, but I can't remember what I what I drew. I remember we, I still do this, get everyone to draw their pictures, give them big fat crayons if possible, so that it takes them back in time, shrinks them in size with big fat crayons. Um, and I can't remember, so whenever you have to talk about play, there's lots of things come into my head. But just today, I was thinking about one in particular. And um, we lived in a wee street, we were mill houses, so we didn't have a garden or anything. Everybody played in the street. But I was sort of a little bit overprotected in a way because of, you know, family things and whatever. My aunt used to take us out to play. <laughs> she used to be involved too much. But I remember when, when I was a bit older, going down to the bottom of the street. Now, we lived in number 50, and those would be we totally kitchen houses. So the bottom of the street wasn't very far away, but it felt like you were far away. It felt like you had a little bit more, more freedom. You were joining in with the gang of kids that were there. You know, there could have been 20, 30 kids sometimes, but we all just got together. And I remember a couple of the games. Um, One of them was Red Rover, Red Rover. We call, you name someone over. And what the aim was, you had to try and break through the ranks of that team. They were they were facing each other, two rows facing each other, and you called someone over, and they had to run over and try and break through your hands because you were clasping the hand of somebody beside you. So it was pretty rough and tough, and you did as hard as you could. And if you made it through, then you joined. You got to go back to your own team. If you didn't make it through, you had to join the other team. So it was, there was lots of rules that nobody ever explained to us. There were lots of um, tricks that, you know, you picked up as you went along. But no one ever taught you. You just joined in. You copied the older ones and you had good crack. And there was another one called Can't Cross the Red Sea. So, again, it was a big crossing over from one team to the other. So you can't cross the Red Sea. So you couldn't, you couldn't win. You couldn't get to the other side where you won unless you had a certain colour on. So, you know, part of observation, everybody was like, what colour are they not wearing? Can't cross the Red Sea without the colour purple. Well, this is the day when all the girls wore their polka dot knickers because you could pull a little bit out and show there was a little purple dot on there. (laughs) Again, nobody nobody taught us that. All these wee tricks and all these wee things to pass on. But that's, you know, you make friends with people, you get to know them. It just builds, it builds, um, that's what children's culture is because there'll be still people somewhere playing those games or playing something very similar and and sometimes they were a bit rough and sometimes they were a bit cheeky but no harm I think it was it was part of part of your um culture when you were a kid absolutely that's that's a great play memory and I mean see you know you're a play you're you know that you're a play work tutor because not only you identifying the play and what you get from the play, you know, in terms of it's fun and you said good crack, you know, you were identifying all that. Oh, you were learning, making new friends, and so on. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what we do as adults, and that we kind of, we kind of, we add the kind of value to the play. Yeah. But, but 
Whenever you left the house, number 50, to go down to the bottom of the street, what did you say to yourself when you were down on the street? Did you say... Oh, I'm free. Oh, we're going to explore. Oh, we're going to see who's here. Um, you know, who's about to say, I'm mates out. Yeah. yeah. That. Absolutely. So you weren't going out to develop, you were going out to, uh, to have fun. Definitely not. Definitely not to, de- to develop. Um, I have a couple of quotes. Oh. Now, you did, you did mention that, you know, Bruce <laughs> often features in some of my conversations or discussions. Yeah, just to clarify for those who who, who aren't uh, who aren't over forty. Oh, <laughs> when Barbara says Bruce, she means Bruce Springsteen. Yes, he's had two number ones album in the last year. They are. So he's not. Oh, you don't have to be over forty at all to be listening to him. Just because he is. <laughs> so Bruce Springsteen, big big hero of mine, um, from nineteen eighty, even so. Me and, me and Bruce go back 40 years, but, you know, he's still, he's still making good music, still going to Broadway and all that too. So one song that he, he sang years ago, and it said, we learned more from a three-minute record, baby, than we ever learned in school. And I remember, I wasn't at school very much, but I was always curious and always reading and stuff like that. And I think you do learn a lot more outside school than you give yourself credit for. And another famous American person, not as not as distinguished as Bruce Springsteen, though is Mark Twain. You may have heard of him. He, he wrote, you know, Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer and stuff like that. But he said then, I never allowed my schooling to interfere with my education. And I thought that's very telling. He, education is such a big thing and he never allowed his schooling, because sometimes schooling can be quite narrow and takes away our curiosity. So you know, never allowed my schooling to interfere with my education. So I sort of stole that a wee bit. I changed it around a wee bit and made it, I never allowed my developmental goals to interfere with my play. And I think that's one of the things we need, we need to bear in mind. I was, I was a bit annoyed yesterday at the, the sele- Education Select Committee or whatever were meeting in Westminster and somebody said to them, Oh, you know, to get children to catch up, you need to add half an hour onto the school day and we'll get them to catch up. And I just thought, school expects children to go back to normal when nobody else is. And it's all about, you children are like a commodity. We have to get the children caught up because that's our future. They're going to produce all this stuff. That's the economy. And it's all almost the children are a commodity. And I thought, you know, what we need to do is, is make sure children are playing more. And there, there are things that, as Mark Twain even said, you can't teach. There are things that you can't teach. And there's things that children get from play. Um, you know, the social development, the emotional development, that sense of self. They get that through play. Nobody can teach them that. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah it's, it's kind of the different, one of the big differences between teaching and learning, isn't it? Yeah, kids, that's it. kids learn from every situation. Well, we all do, of course, learn from every situation, even whenever, even whenever not being taught. But play gives kids the opportunity to learn loads. But of course, it yeah. also encourages them to have fun. So those are, those are some of the benefits of play that, mm-hmm. that 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 of course are important that we all need to pay attention to. But in terms of what play itself actually is, would you? Is there? How would you define play? What would be your characteristics of play well we always we always go back to the freely chosen um intrinsically motivated personally directed and that's what play is um and that covers so much sometimes it's easier to say what play is not than what it is but i i think for for the uninitiated if someone was to come from the planet zorg or something like that or whatever planets are farther away. Um, and they asked, I, I think there's a wee acronym that I use, and it's just the letters FUN, F-U-N. And I think because that's easy to remember, it might stick with people rather than the freely chosen, intrinsically motivated person. We remember all that because we've been saying it so much, but for something simple, the, the F-U-N 
So the free would be freely chosen because children, it's only play if they freely choose to participate in it or initiate it or do it. But the free thing, as I said earlier, whenever I went down the bottom of the street, I wasn't far away, but I felt free because I know somebody wasn't watching me or keeping an eye on me or making sure it was okay. So I felt a bit freer when I was playing. And of course, it doesn't have to cost anything to play. Usually children are happier with things that are free or cheap or found. Um, so the free bit of the F of fun, I think, can spark off those wee thoughts as well. Mm-hmm. You then, the you is, it's about you. It's unique and it's unique to every child. And even within that child, it can be unique to whatever mood that child's in that day. So you can't always predict, but the child knows, the child feels what they want to do and it's unique to them. And we should have some understanding around that as well. So the, the, the you is you and it's unique. Then the, the N is necessary. So we always say children need to play. And of course, that's where sometimes we can go wrong because you think, okay, they need to play because they need to develop all these things. But as you always say, Peter, development is an outcome, but it's not an intention. So they get all this stuff from play. We're talking about social skills, emotional stuff, that feeling of self-efficacy and their own confidence and their own knowledge of themselves. They are all outcomes. But nobody intends to have those outcomes because they're not, you can't just say to someone, I want to, to do this so that you will develop more emotionally today. Doesn't doesn't really work. So it's not, it's necessary, um, but it's not an outcome of development. It's something that the children gain, but nobody sort of sets goals for them. But in yeah. saying that. It, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's almost like added value, isn't it? Not only do children have great fun when they're playing, most of the time when they're playing, not all the time, of course, but most of the time when they're mm-hmm. playing. There are a lot the, there are these other big outcomes to it as well that will have, that will improve the quality of their life now and in the future. In the future, yes, exactly. And that's that's what what annoyed me a bit about that discussion yesterday in Parliament. I was thinking they're talking about all the learning. But they're not talking about their social well-being. They're not talking about their emotional health. They're talking about nothing like that because the schools were closed, yes, but they also closed the playgrounds. They also stopped kids going out. So they, they're not talking about um, adding extra things to help with that. So that's why I think Playboard's CPR, we plug for Playboard CPR, is very good. So how we look? Look, look at that and all the stuff that's going around somewhere of play. Government nothing to do with that really, but we know how important it is for kids. Yeah. And so, they need need to play. Yeah. So so the C, C, the CPR is about yeah. resuscitating play for kids because it's so important for their health and well being. C standing for being clued into play, knowing what play actually is. We'll come back to that in a bit. P is about giving kids permission to play. So we're 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 giving them the the full potential to play, allowing them to make noise, allowing them to make a mess, allowing them to be just absolutely really silly. And all those things, in other words, giving them permission to play. And they are standing for the resources, making sure that there are resources there uh, that children can use as props for play or as uh, to support their play. CPR. Let's give kids some CPR. Okay, of, uh, so, of, of course, given... Giving kids CPR, <clears throat> uh, uh, the people who tend to do that, the people who make play work are play workers. That's why we call it play workers, I guess. And, and, and one of the things that's important is that those play workers uh, recognize play when play is taking place. So you, you, that's a real, you've really you've given a really good kind of definition of what play is. What does it look like when you see play taking place what, what are the kind of components of, of the play process? Or what are the components when play takes place? That's a really hard question. <laughs> Especially when they just said it's unique to every child and individual and may not. But there, is, there are certain things that, that um, adults can see 
and identify any change. Although I remember um, a student in the past, Alison, hello Alison, if she's listening, um, she had photocopied a page from a book of poems that children had wrote. And one of them was about adults looking at play and the poem sort of, can't remember all the words, but it's something like, um, parent or adults won't understand our play because we've got 10 foot walls and they've only got five foot ladders. And I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> you know, I thought, yeah, we can see a little bit, you know, if you're standing on a five foot ladder and you're over five foot, you may see a little bit, but you won't be able to look right into the whole thing. So I thought that was very good. But we can't, there are some things that we can see and um, Sturrock and Else talked about the play cycle and talked about, you know, all the components of that and what we can see. And actually recently Pete King did some research into, he had a tool called the play cycle observation method, P-C-O-M, play cycle observation method. So he's done a wee bit of, of looking into that and, and how um, you can explain to people what they're what they're seeing, what they're observing in kids. So I think that that can be quite a useful thing. And it's something we may be able to identify with ourselves or remember ourselves. And that is quite a key thing. That's why we do the play memories. We do the play memories to help us remember what it was like. And mm -hmm. we need to sort of you know clue in, should you say, be clued in to what, what the play is. So that can be a useful tool as well. Going back to talking about play being necessary, that it's an outcome, but it's not an intention. It might not be an intention, but there's a drive for the child to play. So there is that child feels that need to play, and it's a drive from within them. And that drive we call a metal lead. So that's like a little seed of play. It's like a little germ, a little idea, a wee spark. There's lots of different ways you can describe it within a child. And they take that and then that causes them to, to act in a particular way, to go and chase after someone, to go over to a certain area and start putting things together, to go somewhere and start being creative or whatever. It's that, that, that metal lute, that seed of play. But one thing we, we talk about, we've been talking about quite a lot in, in the playwork class is that at the beginning of the year, sometimes they have new children coming in who don't know what to play with. And they don't know. They're always asking an adult for instructions mm -hmm. or what are we going to do now? And they're putting the onus on the adult to entertain them or to give them something to do because they've been so used to adults leading every moment of their existence. You know, in school, sometimes they parents take them out to clubs or, or whatever and if that happens they're not used to listening to that little voice inside that little metal loop and sometimes that little spark is under threat of going out so when children come up and say oh they're bored the, the natural reaction is for us to say hey, come on we'll do this or let's go and see what they're doing or whatever and it's quite hard to step back and say okay you're bored right okay when are you in the mood for the day or why don't you have a wee wander around and explore you know it's hard for us to do it because we usually want to make them happy but sometimes they need to have that discomfort of boredom sometimes and then they start to listen because if you if you tune into that wee metal loop goodness knows what could come out of it their their imagination their creativity all those in inventive thoughts that they could have can come forward from that little spark. But if you if you don't let them be bored or don't let them be thinking, then you know that drive isn't there. So a lot of children, and I think particularly over lockdown, because they've been at home all the time, you know, and maybe their parents have been entertaining them or they've had to sit in front of a computer screen and they haven't had the opportunities to uh, explore and find what they want to do, to imagine something or to create something. And I think we have to be very careful that children uh, don't lose that, that metal loot. I think it's too late for some 
others might have problems with the bit of thing, just give them the opportunity to have that little drag for that metal lute, because that's that's the beginning of play, the beginning of the play cycle starts within the child. Do you, th do you think, uh, I mean, that, that, I think that's really, really important, you know, that, that, I mean, I suppose part of our drive is to, is to encourage kids to be independent in their play. Yeah. So, so uh, having that metal and allowing that metal to kind of stimulate the play is, is really good. Do you think can kids, can other kids model that kind of, that spark? Yeah, I think we, we always talk about um, one of the main ways any of us learn, but particularly as children, is by copying others, is by having role models around and, and watching. As I said, whenever I went down the street to play these games, nobody told me how to play Red Rover. Nobody said, oh, here are the rules. Right, let's set them out. One, two, three. Or nobody said, you know, this is how you can win at Red Sea. Nobody said all those things. We watched the older kids play and then the older kids moved on and we became the older kids. And, you know, there was such a mix of ages sharing up and down the, the rules and, and the ways of play. So I think children need to, to see what others are doing and, and explore and find out. And again, they find out a bit about themselves because they find out, am I a sporty type person mm -hmm. or am I, you know, a chilled out person? Or am I a creative person? They find out a wee bit about themselves as well. It makes them more individual. And there's nothing worse. I'll be saying this to play workers. There's nothing worse than you being in your in your setting and children constantly coming up and saying, well, what do you want me to do now? What can I do now? You'd be tortured. Yeah. So it's much better if children can come in and they can go and they can know and see where things are and they go and get it. And maybe if they need a hand with something, that's fair enough. But that they're not constantly in your ear going, what do I do now? Or what are we going to do next? Because it's just, you drag around the twist. <laughs> Absolutely. <clears throat> Absolutely. So it's good for you, for, the, for the play worker. And it's obviously it's good for the child as well, because it means that they're playing and the, beginning to play independently. So if that's the beginning, that kind of light bulb moment or play bulb moment or whatever way you want to describe it, coming on in their head, making sure that we allow them the time for that to happen and maybe the opportunity to see it happening with other kids and, and getting the idea for it. Yeah. What happens next then? Well, usually when there's, there's this little drag, this metal loop, usually that has to come out in some form and the child will send out a play cue to let people know, this is what I want to do. This is what I, I my intention is or I'm, what I'm in the mood for. So that can be, that can be a verbal thing. They could go over and say, right, are you coming to do this? I'm going I'm to set up an assault course here, or, or I'm going to make a wee cafe here, or whatever, or I want to draw this. So sometimes it's a verbal thing. Sometimes it's, it's a bit more physical. A child running up and tapping somebody saying, you're it, and running away. And you know, you know what to do after that. Somebody kicks a ball over to you, you know what to do. So sometimes it's a physical thing. But sometimes play cues are a bit more subtle. You can have that directly telling you. You can have the physical um, cue. But sometimes it's a bit more subtle. Sometimes it's somebody sitting and they've set something, maybe a board game or maybe some craft or they've been drawing something or they're trying to pick something up and they're on their own and then they start looking around for somebody to come and join them. Or somebody maybe has like designed a wee cafe and they're standing and they're looking around, who's going to come to my shop or who's going to come to my cafe? So sometimes there's little subtle things like that. And sometimes it's just a glance, a tone of voice, or a, even more than that, or more subtle than that, it can be just a little look when mm. it can just be catching your eye. And, you know, you're, then you look to see what they're doing and you say, oh, they haven't got enough of this and they need some of that. Or, you know, maybe they want somebody to hold the end of something whilst they, whilst they finish it, whatever. So it's, it is a skill to pick up a play cue. And again, it's one of the things that play workers can't interfere in too much. If play workers are sitting playing with children, they'll only be playing with a couple of children 
and they'll not know what's going on in the rest of the room. And there could be kids that are sending out play cues, needing a wee hand, wanting an idea, wanting something, and the play worker sitting there engrossed in something else. So that's that's why I always say a play worker needs to try to be invisible as much as possible, but at the same time, going around and make themselves available. Play workers constantly thinking and reflecting and looking at something and weighing up a situation. But if you're if you're sitting there playing with the kids, you know, that can't happen. So you're missing out on so many play cues. And you know, you need to you need to sort of sometimes you need to be the one to pick up that play cue mm. or you can encourage other kids, you know, there's such and such has got something interesting or whatever. But the play cue, because if if it's if it's not picked up, we call it display. <clears throat> and I think that's a horrible thing. If some child's sending out play cues and nobody's picking them up, nobody's interested in what they want to do, that can be a hard thing. So the play worker sometimes has to do that. But bear in mind that they step back as much as possible afterwards and let the children get on with it and just be making themselves available, ready to pick up play cues, ready to add something to the play or keep an eye on, on the situation or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what happens next, I think. Yeah, so so uh, part of the, the job of the play worker is to be sensitive to those play cues, to, yeah. you know, to, to, to be ob- observing the play and sensitive to those play cues and see which ones aren't being picked up. Because I suppose it's... It's a wee bit like language, you know. Kids aren't necessarily good at at, at verbalising what they're trying to say. Well, it's the yeah. same in terms of their play language. They're not necessarily very good at sending out play cues. So we need to be really good as play workers. Need to be really good at picking those play cues up and seeing if they're either picked up by us or picked up by, by somebody else. Yeah. And if Did they're picked up, and if they're picked up by somebody else. Uh, then that that develops a kind of independent piece of play, which is great, because they, mm-hmm. that that is not what we call a play return. So yeah, if someone picks up a play cue, they pick up a play cue and respond in some way that, that they're returning the play. So they are saying, yes, I want to get involved. Sometimes it's not. Maybe it's sort of sending the play cue off in a different direction, but often it's returning to that child. And to start off a game, a game of kickabout or a game of chases or a, a board game or this imaginary cafe, that if they pick up, that that's that play cue being returned again to the person. Mm-hmm. And they're the basic things to do with the play cycle. Same. Yeah. So some, sometimes the play worker can be almost like a gatekeeper or, a, or you know, kind of hold them yeah. up and deflect the the play cue to somebody else so that they so that they. Yeah. Provide the play return rather than be dependent. I on the play work. Yeah, that's the image reflecting it back. Yeah, I remember um, as well. We used to talk about uh, like like play cues, not not just going to people. You know, it could be to objects and so on as well. And I always used to find that really hard to understand. And then I remembered, or somebody told me a story about George Best, the the best footballer ever. You well, think so? Uh, well, best footballer ever, but. Uh, <clears throat> But one of the things he used to do was he used to kick a tennis ball against a, 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 a wall that wasn't flat brick, but was lots of uneven uh, stone. So the ball would come back in different directions. And that would, that would, that's one of the ways that he, that he learned how to manage and control the ball coming in different directions and so on. I always thought that was a wee bit like a play cue. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to go to people. It can be the objects and things as well, as George Best found out. And that really added value to his play, and it certainly improved his footballing skills as well. Yeah, because yeah, it is, it's about, play is about children interacting with the environment, discovering yeah. the environment, putting their mark on the environment. So that can be done when a child is alone or even just playing alone. And there can be various things that they can um take further and develop and you know they get a they get a response from an object. If they if they press something right, I wonder will this box hold up if I if I cut sides in it and they don't know till they've tried it and they, they've sort of interacted with that box. So again there's there's play cues and there's response, yes that will work or that will not work. So there is that sort of a 
an element where it doesn't have to be people. But mm-hmm. I mean, I'm thinking there, I know you want me to sing the Bruce Springsteen song, and I wasn't going to do that. But you know, uh, hopefully you remember this wee song that I think is a wee bit of play cue in return. You know, um, you're wanted on the telephone, and if it wasn't for Peter, you'd be alone. Hey, Barbara. Someone's calling my name. Hey, Barbara. I think I heard it again. You're wanted (laughs) on the telephone. And if it wasn't for Jackie, you'd be alone. And then it starts off. So I think that sort of sums up a wee bit. Sorry for the thing. But it sums up a wee bit about play cues in a way. So there's a play cue going out to the first person. The first person has to respond and the song keeps going. But then you have to think of somebody else. And the cue goes out from those two people to someone else. And then you keep adding people, up, people on. So, you know, I, I don't know if anybody remembers that song. <laughs> but I used to do my head in years ago. One yeah. of the favourite songs. One of the favourite songs, Venture Kids. Kids loved it. We sang it some of the time. Brilliant. Brilliant. That's a really good, that's a really good way to illustrate, I think, the play, the play cue and the play return. And and, yeah. and and you mentioned there the environment, you know, the kind of context in which that took place, or or the play frame. Let's say a wee bit about the play frame. Yeah, so I suppose the easiest way to look at a play frame is a physical space. And it can be, you know, the football's on at the minute and all that. And you know when the ball goes over the line, there has to be a throw-in back again. So that's the boundary around that game of football or any physical game it's usually a boundary if you're doing hide and seek in the park you still if you remember talk about don't be going past that path or you're not allowed out that gate and whatever so you sometimes you create a physical boundary if you're doing something um you know board games or something craft ways or you're making up something it can be that the, the chairs around the table can be a physical boundary so the physical boundary is quite easy to, to see so that's the easiest form of play frame, I suppose, they identify. But um, there are non-material play frames as well. And they can be maybe time-bound. They can be, you know, a game. And I usually think about a game of Jenga. You know, when you pull the little blocks out and the play frame sort of ends when all the bricks collapse and somebody decides, right, now I'm playing now and, and they walk away. So it's, it's bound by that time or that action that happens. Mm-hmm. And that's the play frame has a beginning and an end in terms of that. Mm-hmm. And so, but a wee illustration and a half of years ago, my granddaughter is nearly 18 now, when she was about three, we were in church and there were two other wee girls about her age and they all happened to be wee blondies and they didn't sit close together. So we can imagine in church all these pews lined up, but the, the congregation, instead of listening to the minister, were watching the kids because the minister, I think, was trying to talk to the kids. But all of a sudden, you saw we head pop up and wave across to one of the other kids, and they wave back, and then the heads ducked down and they crawled along to the end of the pew. They popped their heads up at the other end and waved at each other and they kept down again. And <laughs> I think we could just see everyone in the congregation smiling because you could see the kids crawling under bits and popping up and waving at each other. Now, there wasn't really a physical boundary there because it was in a big church. So it wasn't bounded by a physical space. It wasn't bounded by time because I think they could have kept on and on doing this. And there was no natural end of that game. But one thing that did create a frame was their relationship with each other. So they were the only three that were in that game. The, the church had lots of other people in it, but nobody else was playing that, and everybody was in between them. But actually, it was their relationship that held that play frame together. So again, that can happen. And play frames, sometimes you think, oh, play frames happen today. I can see a play frame happen, and then it's gone. But other times, I'm sure most play workers have seen kids coming in out of school, throwing the bags down and rushing back over to finish whatever they'd started the day before. And that's, that's great if you can let children do that. I know some places have to wrap up and pack everything away, but it's great if you can let that continue because a, a, a play cycle can be 
a short time bound thing, but it can go on for ages and they can just pick up and keep going. So it's, it's not just the physical boundaries, it's the mm. non-physical boundaries as well. It's any space where there's lots of views and returns happening. Uh, I think. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 that's a great uh, explanation. I, I, I know that uh, I mentioned Venture Kids before. One of their favourite games was... Uh, was a game called Keywords. Uh, and that's a game where you tell a story and in the story there's a particular keyword and every time you mention that keyword, everybody goes to hide, you know? So uh-huh. it was just whenever, it was just whenever you said about about play frames lasting for days, a story would be a good example of that because, you know, stories yeah. can continue for the whole, you know, like a theme almost for the whole of the summer. So like a, yeah. a kind of theme for your summer scheme might be part of the play frame. Yeah, and the story could be part of the program. Yeah, we had the summer of Big Brother. I remember very clearly. It was way back when Big Brother only started, I think it was the year 2000 or something, 2001 or whatever. And I remember we had this big box, a giant, a giant box. It was probably about six feet each side, massive big thing. And Big Brother had just come out and the kids had started tuning in because in those days Big Brother was a bit more innocent I think than it is now I think there's some some things going on that isn't suitable isn't suitable for me never mind the kids <laughs> but <laughs> we had this big box and I remember we started because I think we went to Carrie Castle or something and they'd, they'd heard all about the, the Scottish soldiers who were starved to death and then the, or the, the prisoner and then the people in the castle because they were under siege at them and all and you know the kids got really into all that so they came back and they made this castle but it didn't last as a castle very long it, it sort of evolved into a big brother room so they de- decorated this and there was a chair inside because in big brother they had a diary room and this went on this was the whole summer of the Big Brother diary room. So they used to go in and make a confession to each other. And, and what happened there? And talk all sorts of nonsense. But it was that's what their play thing was that year. Yeah, so sometimes there's a theme. The Frozen one. Oh, my goodness. I'm so glad the Frozen one's away. It was too cold. <laughs> but never, it was too cold. But Frozen, Frozen seemed to last for that, that yeah. song. Oh, yeah. It seemed to last for, for ages, and it was great. You could see the kids play. They thought, oh, there's some white, white fabric that will make a snow castle, and, you know, all these various things. But, I mean, that's that's something that can be brought on and built on. And there was another student in, in Brightsburg, where there used to be, Alana, and they went to some parrot thing. And whatever I went to say, she had a parrot ship built inside. You know, it's like half a parrot ship. And this big pole up the middle, you know, like inside of a carpet tube. That was up the middle is the mast and all. And the kids had made all these swords out of plastic stuff. And it just seemed to be, she said it had been going on from, you know, the last month or whatever. And this parrot thing was still there. Kids went off and did something else. And then they came back to play, walk the plank or whatever they were doing. So this was things just, we didn't imagine kids do it. Oh, so what, what do you think? Oh, I don't know about that word. 
it's it's a bit severe annihilation. But anyway, I mean, it is, it is about it is about you know children finishing the play themselves. One of the things we don't want to do as adults, mm -hmm. sometimes we have to, is to uh, is to end the play for them. But yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah. inevitably, there are times whenever whenever you have to. But we talk about DIY play, you know, so play that kids do themselves, so they decide what to play. When to play, mm -hmm. how to play, and when to stop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, annihilation is it's a tough word. And sometimes it does end in a way that's a bit nasty. Sometimes children go, I, I didn't win at Jenga. So they, they throw the things up in the air, or somebody falls out with someone. So sometimes that does happen. Or sometimes one person gets really fed up, don't want to play anymore. And because they leave, the rest of the thing can't keep going without them. So they've mm -hmm. annihilated the play. So sometimes it isn't nice. And I think that's one thing we have to remember. Yeah. If we look back at our play, and I'm looking back, got a red roving, can't cross the red sea. And I know it was a bit rough. but And I know that there were things we played that weren't always nice. And we tend to look back on our play memories, rose-tinted spectacles, things weren't nice and it doesn't take much when you're talking to play workers to say well what kind of rough games did you play do you ever do Chinese burns and they'll all have some experience of that knuckles uh, knuckles yes you used to be really skilled for, for for the people who are under 40 all right you got a deck of cards and you cut the cards you, know, you lifted half the pile up and you look to see what card it was the next person did that and whoever had the lowest card got knuckled so you just held your fist out and you had this deck of cards and you used to try and just fan it just slightly to make it even rougher and you hit the person on the knuckles with it and that's how you won or lost at knuckles and some people do that yeah. or some people have admitted that they used to like Play, wrap the doors and run, or bail fast, press the bell and you run fast. Or my grandson, I think he must have got it from a computer game or YouTube. He says it's ding dong ditch. Nice, so you went ding dong you and you ditch the place. So some people remember doing things like that. Or Grand National, we didn't have, the posh people did this just, Peter, because we didn't have a garden. But you used to have people with gardens, little front gardens and little hedges or fences in between. So you started off at one end of the street and you jumped over each of the fences. I thought that was a great game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've just, got, I've just got the image of, uh, what, what's that, what's that, Steve? Uh, uh, oh, flip me, the, the play, the, the police comedy thing, Simon Page in. Where, oh, where, yes. Where they're chasing the, the high hot dogs, where they're chasing the guy over the fences. And the second guy who's a bit larger than the first guy just runs straight through the fence. <laughs> that, that would be me. That would be me. Yeah, I think that happens quite often. Yeah. So here, Barbara, we're 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 coming towards an end. I suppose uh, we've talked a wee bit about the ending of play. Uh, one one of the things that we've mentioned the whole way through is the kind of adult role in in the kind of play process, or at, at various points within the play cycle, and how important it is for the adult. Uh, not to take over the play, but to add value to the play. So that that's a that's a kind of uh, that's a very important skill, if you like, as a play worker, knowing when to intervene and and when not to intervene yeah. and how to intervene. Have you any examples of good good intervention or not so good intervention? Yeah, I think it's, it's really difficult, and I don't know whether it stems from the fact that maybe you played schools when you were a child and people used to fight over who was going to be the teacher. Is there something within us that likes to sort of control things and other people? So when it comes to being a play worker, you know, you have to develop this skill and it really is a skill of not joining in, no matter how much fun it looks and you really want to do it. <laughs> you know, just have this, this, um, idea in your head that you're not there to play with the kids, you're there to make play work. So, and I, I've said I've said recently to um, students who have maybe members of staff who can't help themselves, they join in or they start something off or they lead a game. And I always say, well, do you know, give them, 
give them a little sheet of the play tapes or give them a little sheet of um, the senses or give them something where they can go about and they can see what play tape is that happening there and film it in because that keeps their hands off the play. But it's also teaching them a little bit about playwork as well. So nearly if you have somebody like that, give them a, a clipboard and a sheet of paper with a play tape and say, look, have a wee look and see what you can see. And it stops them getting too close. But it is a skill. It is pretty hard. Mm. Um, and sometimes you do need to step in. But you'll never know when if you don't walk about and look and see and make yourself available. You'll not know when it's appropriate and when it's not. And it can be very difficult. So I think if you if you look up and read up into the intervention styles, that is a big help. But basically, you know, it's it's good common sense. It's putting yourself in the child's shoes. And it can be picking up play cues like, oh, we're trying to get these two bits of card to stand up together and we we'll want to make this divide or whatever. And they're looking around, they don't know what to do. And they catch your eye and then you go and get them some masking tape or something. And you don't do it for them. You send it over without help. You know, so you're enhancing it. Uh, you're adding stuff to it. I said about the frozen stuff because I remember, you know, adding white fabric and adding things like that to a space to enhance that play, help them with their creating the snow castle or whatever it was. Yeah. So sometimes you're there to enhance it. Yeah. And sometimes you're there, you know, you do have to, one of the, one of the problems is we do have to work within a framework. We have to work within with the, the space we have, we have to work with the resources we have, and we have to work with the rules around health and safety and all the minimum standards and all that. So there might be times that you need to step in. And again, it's known when, and it's when the children stop enjoying it, you know, rough and tumble. There's a, I have a video that I put on YouTube, if anybody wants to see it. It's my granddaughter and her friend, and they are rough and tumble play, pretty rough. And it's, uh, it's them messing about. And you know that they're all right. You're thinking, look, they're murdering each other. And some people are quite shocked if I show them it. But you can see that they're laughing or calling each other names or they, they go pause and the children stop. So it's almost like, you know, they, they have these rules that they, they didn't speak about. They just started messing about. So, you know, we have to then be careful that we don't step in too prematurely. And even if children are in a wee bit of conflict, to step back and see if they can sort it themselves. Because if we step in immediately, then we are preventing them from learning conflict resolution skills. Yep. So they develop that. But also, you know, whenever a child's doing something with another child or some of these falls out, there's this temptation, and again, I don't know where it comes from, to make the children speak to each other and shake hands and be friends again. And I just think, what's going on in that child's head? They're actually going, you're a wee rat, I'll shake hands now, but I'll get to you later on. <laughs> and you can see them stewing. So actually making them do that's nonsense. Yeah. You, you, know, can imagine, you can imagine referees and the Euros uh, getting the players to shake oh. hands and so Or the speaker up at Stormont. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a very good point, Peter. Because you just, you, can, you know, that it's only tokenism. They're just doing it just yeah. to shut you up. Yeah. And they're not getting anything from it. So sometimes it's better to let them try and either sort it out or walk away from each other and just say, well, you're not going to take a personal play with somebody else. Yeah. You know, but it's that it's that need in us to try and control things that we yeah. have to override the play workers. We have to just get past that and remember when you were a child, going right back to the play memories, remember not just what you did, where you did it, who you did it with, but... How did you feel and why would you do certain things? But getting right back to those children's feelings helps you understand, you know, how those children, and I, not to be a play hypocrite. That's another wee thing I say to the students. Don't be a play hypocrite. You're watching the kids and you're going to do something that, if you remember, if an adult had done that to you, how would you have felt? Yeah. So don't be a play hypocrite. Yeah. That's a good. That's a that's a good way of looking at it for sure. I mean, it is it is about 
it is about reflecting on your practice so that so that all the time you're you're analyzing and seeing how you to see whether your your interventions are appropriate or not appropriate. But it is it's also isn't it, about how far down intervening to, to meet the needs of the kids rather than meet your own needs for control or to look good in front of everybody else or to have fun yourself. It's about children's play and meeting their play yeah. needs. Yeah. Okay. We always talk about that in safeguarding, you know, whenever it comes to the yeah. physical contact and the needs of the child, not the needs of the adult. We have to make ourselves step back and be invisible and just, as you say, reflect and be thinking about, do they need something? Is that all right there? Can I add something to this? Should I make a note that we need more yellow paint or whatever? You're constantly working, but you're making play work by not being involved in it. Because if you're involved too much, it's not play. Yeah, yeah it's certainly not their play. It's not play at all. Barbara, that's fantastic. What a fantastic picture you've painted of play. What play is and the processes that go on whenever children are playing. And what we as adults can do to add value to the play or, or to make play work. Of course, we all recognise that that's really, really important for children any time of the year. But it's particularly important and synonymous almost with the summer. And even more important this summer because of what the kids have been through over the last year and a half. Really important that we have a good summer of play. Play like the way Barbara's described you today. So, guys, thanks very much for joining us for the second episode of the PlayPod. Check out the PlayBoard website, playboard.org, and you'll find lots and lots of different ideas and inspiration about how you can make play work for children over the summer. And don't forget how important it is to do it anytime, but especially this year, the summer of play. Thanks, Barbara. Thanks, Peter. Take care, guys. Thank you. Bye.